Today on Give First, I speak with Jay Klaus, who is a student of the world's top content creators. Jay talks about the value of building your startup in public, the compounding value of investing time and creating content, and how that opens doors for you and your company. That's coming up right now on Give First. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad, and this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities and some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? Jay, welcome to the show. Great to have you. Great to be here, David. So I want people to understand a little bit about you before we jump in. I know you've been involved with Techstars through organizing startup weekends and things like that, but talk a bit about your journey through startups, investing, coaching, and now working with creators. Sure. I mean, I genuinely would say it started with Startup Weekend. Back in 2012, I attended my first Startup Weekend event and our team placed second It was like a life-changing experience because when I came into that weekend, I knew one person there. And when I left, I knew more than 100 people in the local startup ecosystem, including like incredible mentors who were startup founders and, you know, investors around town. So over the course of five years, Startup Weekend, both the local and the global community really changed the trajectory of my life in the community that I spent time with. So that got me down the path of thinking, okay, I think I'm going to avoid the traditional middle management path that business school is trying to push me down <laughs> and instead lean into my interests in startups. So out of college, I co-founded a, a company with a guy named Alex Burkhart. It was based in Cincinnati and it was a ticketing company kind of competing with like SeatGeek and oh, I forget the name of the ticketing company in San Francisco now. but It was a rough market, like a super competitive marketplace, took a lot of money to compete. The thing you were selling had like a very short shelf life. If you you took on inventory, like the logistics of it were challenging. It was crazy. But we went through an accelerator. We raised a little angel funding. We sold that company in 2015. And then I went to work for a venture-backed company here in town in Columbus, Ohio. At the time, it was called Crosschecks. Now it's called Olive AI. It's in the healthcare field. And I enjoyed that, but it was tough going from founder to employee. I really struggled with it and eventually just couldn't deal with like the identity shift of that. So I went back out on my own. I get it. And I didn't actually know what I was going to do. I had this plan that I thought I would leave the company in a couple of months. The company had a board meeting with this leadership and they said, hey, we're changing directions in the company a lot and your role is going to change. And that change starts tomorrow. And I thought to myself, I think it's time that I leave, actually. And so within like a 48-hour period of time, I went from, I might leave this company in a month or so, to being like unemployed. They were giving me two weeks of severance. And I was like, okay, well, great. I guess I'll figure out what I want to do now. 
And that looked like freelancing to start. I was building websites and doing copywriting and, and doing automation. That introduced me to this opportunity to actually work with LinkedIn Learning. LinkedIn purchased lynda.com shortly before that. lynda.com was like an education platform. LinkedIn Learning was this course platform inside of LinkedIn, and they were looking for someone to come in and teach product management. So I had that opportunity to work with them to build these courses. That introduced me to the world of online courses and ultimately the world of being a creator, which I completely fell in love with because creators are building products like I had been used to doing, but digital products for the most part. And I could build a digital product without having to force it through the lens of engineers and designers and executives and timelines and things. So that's where I am today, building my own products as a content creator and helping other people do the same. Awesome. So I stumbled upon the podcast Creative Elements. Love what you're doing there. It's very give first, by the way. Lots of great takeaways from that, but also lots of free tools through creator science that, that you give away. So you seem to be giving away a lot of what you're doing. Is that part of the strategy? That is the content creator model in a nutshell. I think that the people who really do well as creators are incredibly giving people because it's not unlike social media platforms as companies. The content model is you need to capture attention so that you can monetize that attention later. And the best way to capture attention is to just give a ton of value for free. And that's the model in a nutshell. So my business model is writing an email newsletter twice per week. It's creating a podcast episode once per week. It's creating a YouTube video once per week. It's creating content on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram daily. And all that's free and accessible to anybody and helps a lot of people so that, you know, some people choose to go to the next step and invest with you directly. And numbers really play in your favor. There's huge scale available here, not to mention other non-product based revenue opportunities like sponsorship. The model in a nutshell is give first for as long as you can, never stop giving. And then some people will choose to give back to you because of that. It's almost like a freemium model in the sales totally. business. Give away something valuable. It has to be valuable. I think that's a big part of the key, right? It can't just be a bunch of stuff. I always thought the best way to get attention was to stand on a street corner and just yell. Is that not, not accurate? <laughs> I have been telling people a lot lately that my job is to be a public loudmouth on social media. So it's, it's very similar to that. I want to talk about the episode you did with Sahil Bloom, who I think did a lot to kind of demystify finance and investing for people and the journey and, and maybe some takeaways for entrepreneurs or other investors or mentors that might be listening to the show today. Yeah. Sahil's story was he was in venture. And during the pandemic, he found himself working from home and having a lot of free time. He was a consumer of Twitter. Like he was on Twitter. He enjoyed being on Twitter. Decided, hey, I could probably add to the conversation here. And based on his background in finance, he started writing threads. And threads were not what they are today on Twitter. He was one of the earliest people writing educational threads that were in-depth and like wildly valuable to help people understand personal finance, business finance. And because of that, because he was so good at sharing that and because he had a novel use of the tool, he got a lot of attention. And his account grew like crazy. Today, he has almost 800,000 followers on Twitter. And he's expanded his scope of what he talks about quite a bit. But huge opportunity because now he is self-employed. He has a venture firm of his own where people come to him because not only does he have funding for them, but he has a ton of influence, both in the relationships that he's built because he's highly visible, but also in his megaphone that he's built, all of his channels. 
not only is it Twitter now, but it's also LinkedIn. It's also an email newsletter. It's also a podcast. So this level of influence that you can have as an individual by building your personal brand, your personal creative platform, it can be huge no matter what you're trying to do, whether you want to funnel that towards your own products, whether you want to funnel that towards your startup or your fund, it can be totally game-changing. I want to talk about how he did it, create some new approaches or do things early, but then a little bit about why he did it. On the how, I mean, do you have to do something new and unusual, like start doing threads when people aren't really doing that or their playbooks? Like, how, how do people do that? It certainly helps. There's a first mover advantage in content just as much as there is in anything else. So if you are the category leader for something, that's going to be really good for you if there are people looking for that thing. And his novel use of the tool was really great because it works specifically with Twitter. You think about the incentives of any of these platforms, they want people to stay on platform for as long as possible. So instead of somebody scrolling their feed endlessly through tweets, they would see his tweet, they would click on it, they would scroll through his tweet for a period of time. So it's keeping people on platform. That sends a signal to the algorithm that, hey, we should show this content to more people. So he reaped the benefits of that. Now, you know, a lot of people have taken from that playbook and that field is more competitive. So he's moved into what he sees as a current opportunity, which is LinkedIn. So now he's growing a lot on LinkedIn and even Instagram. So he's constantly looking at what is the underpriced attention that I can find on the internet right now. And that's hugely valuable. But ultimately, yes, it is valuable to share information that's not being shared in that same way elsewhere. But there's a lot to be said also about people and how they value personality and who they learn from. You don't have to be doing something completely novel and unique if your lens on it is differently or your approach is slightly different or your personality is different because we connect with people. And if you have a different personality and lens and approach, we will connect with that differently. You mentioned this notion of undervalued attention. I get asked about that as an investor almost every day. I was just on a call with a company that manufactures smart water bottles, right, for making sure people are drinking enough. And they said, well, where do I go today to get that sort of attention? And I'm like, uh, you know, uh, I can only tell you to ask the community, but any tips for how you can figure that out or where you can find attention that's maybe relevant to you? Well, there's a shortcut, which is building relationships in the space for people who are spending a lot of time figuring that out. Because outside of that, the solution is being a student of these different platforms. Like you just need to be really tapped in to identify these opportunities. It's no different than looking at any other landscape for opportunities. It's just saying, I'm going to constrict my aperture to the social media landscape right now and see where people are finding traction, how they're doing it, why their results seem to be outsized, and model after that, especially if you can do that in a unique way. I just had another conversation with a guy named Kevin Isparitu, and he has a YouTube channel called Epic Gardening. This is like the largest gardening education platform online, which is so surprising to me because he's built it in the last six years. And I asked him, I said, we are agrarian people. How has the largest gardening education platform just been built in the last six years? And his point was, there has been content online about gardening since online was a thing, but it came from people who had a deep background in gardening and not necessarily fluency in the internet. So it was all locked up in these hard forms of accessing it, like PDFs and scholarly articles. And he identified that opportunity of, there's all kinds of people still looking for gardening advice, but accessing it is actually really difficult. And he followed a similar model where he was the first 
gardening account on TikTok. So if you're the first gardening account on TikTok, anyone who's interested in gardening on TikTok is going to find your stuff. And that is hugely impactful because once you have a strong following on any platform, it becomes a lot easier to leverage that into starting on another platform. And at some point, this becomes a really interwoven web that just self-perpetuates and gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So great stuff on on kind of the how, and obviously you're a resource for people on that and everything you do with with your newsletters and podcasts. That's the shortcut. That's what I also tend to tell people. Don't ask me that. I'm just an investor. There are people that totally focus on this. But getting to the why a little bit, you know, someone like Sahil or others that you've talked to, they don't always know what's going to come out of it on the other end, which is a lot like Give First in general, right? You, you really have no idea what is going to come back to you in the future. But it is valuable. And it, what's interesting to me about it is when you do it for yourself and sort of personally, it builds your personal brand, which is valuable for your whole career. So mm-hmm. it's sort of reusable in that sense. But also, I find a lot of companies say, well, it shouldn't be about you. It shouldn't be about the person. It should really be about the company. So how do people reconcile that? I think you could do it either way. You know, one thing I tell people who are building something and they're trying to get more attention to it, which could be a startup company, a lot of times the thing that you're making is difficult to engineer discovery for. But you are very discoverable online because you are out there evangelizing your ideas. People have already connected to you. So one of the best ways to get people to discover the thing that you're building is by just really becoming sometimes I call it a public loudmouth about what it is that you're doing, but like sharing behind the scenes, talking about here's what we're building and why we're building it this way. Because it's like the the non-selling sales approach. You're not actually saying like, hey, come sign up for a free account over here all the time. You can do that sometimes. But a lot of times you can just say, hey, this is what I'm doing today, building this company. Here's why we made this specific decision. Here's how we ran this meeting. And that creates attention and awareness for what you're doing. And you also weren't pitching that thing. You were just sharing your experience contributing to the knowledge base of people who want to learn about this. So build in public is a huge movement on social media right now. Because how cool would it have been if we were able to read into Jeff Bezos's mind in real time in the 90s on like a daily or even weekly basis? We get these investor letters and we're like, holy cow, this is amazing. But imagine if he was tweeting during that time and you're able to see like all of the things he was sharing. Not only is it interesting in real time, but it's an interesting time capsule too. So that's a huge opportunity available to anybody right now with some discretion or some things, of course, you don't want to share publicly, but that adds a lot to the world. And it's a really great inroad to somebody finding out about the company you're building. I have a current example of that, that I've sort of stumbled into the browser company. There's this new browser called Arc Browser that I've been a convert to. I'm not an investor that I know of. Maybe somehow I am, but not directly. I just sort of found out about it. And I was interested in it from the product side. Oh, different browser. I wonder what that's all about. That's a crowded market. I sort of stumbled into this build in public thing that you're talking about where I couldn't tell you the name of the people that are involved, but I've, I've watched them talk about their vision. So I came at it more from I'm interested in the product side. I'm sure they've got their own personal followings and get people interested that way as well. And, and it crosses over, right? And sort of helps both. But it, it's been awesome to watch them talk about in a non-salesy way, like here, oh, we're going to our board meeting. Here's what we talked about. Here's a few shots from the board meeting. Here's our vision, which I never would have understood. I thought it was just a browser, but it's really a vision for your computer being in the cloud. And I understand that because they're 
building in public in that way. So I do think it's an interesting sort of design pattern for a startup itself. Yeah, and of course, we wish we would be able to sit everybody down and say, here, watch this 20-minute in-depth explanation of what I'm building and why it's important. But people won't make that trade very often. But if you're sharing that consistently, even in small parts that add up to a larger whole, people will be able to catch on to everything that you're saying in little bits over time. And you're doing that at scale too, because as long as you are starting to attract more and more attention, you can now be educating your consumer, your user, your investor, all at the same time by just kind of sharing it openly. And I'm a big fan of Twitter. I think Twitter is probably the best fit for this audience, but LinkedIn truly is having a moment right now. It's really a a window of opportunity that I think anyone can jump in and share relatively high quality content and catch traction quickly. It's a big, big opportunity to educate your user, attract users, educate investors on your vision. And it becomes valuable. It becomes almost de-risked in a certain way or a little bit lower risk if you as a founder have a following of people who are also your consumers. Like You have a huge leg up on distribution. You can build an amazing product, but you got to get customers. How are you going to get customers? Well, I have a Twitter following of 20,000 people who are in this space who've been following me for a year, who trust my recommendations. Instead of recommending some other existing product, we built one based on the feedback of our audience. That's huge. That's an incredibly compelling pitch. And I know that as you build this, again, whether it's personal or comes from the company side, but it ends up staying with you. And it's sort of this idea that it throughout your career compounds, I thought was was interesting from your episode with Sam Parr. Maybe talk a little bit about your takeaways from that one and how it just sort of builds upon itself. Yeah, Sam Parr, he's the co-host of My First Million on the HubSpot Network, as is my show, Creative Elements. And he built the Hustle daily newsletter sold it to HubSpot a couple of years ago. The terms of the deal have not been disclosed, but it seems safe to say that it was in the tens of millions of dollars. And he could go and do that again right now. He could build another hustle. There's nothing stopping him or something in a similar business model. He probably can't build another hustle. But he's spending a lot of time dedicated on building his personal brand and his following on Instagram, in the podcast, on Twitter, because he realizes that is an asset that he can leverage in so many ways for the rest of his life, somebody that's interested in Sam Parr and what he is talking about and what he's doing, they're going to be interested in Sam Parr 10 years from now if he continues to keep their attention and share things that are interesting. So he can kind of weaponize that attention towards any opportunity that he wants to, whether it's building a new company himself, whether it's becoming an investor and saying, hey, here's one of my portfolio companies that I was really interested in because I talk to people all the time who need this type of thing. It's a huge, huge asset to have an invested engaged audience of people that are interested in what you're doing because he could start a company, he could direct his audience's attention towards it, that company could be successful, he could sell that company. There's no selling the affinity that people have in you. You can retain that even though you're selling the company and a thing of value. You're not starting from zero again the next time around. You have basically the same, probably a bigger asset now of the same variety and you can just do this time and time again. So one thing I struggled with early on with with all of this, and I think a lot of founders and people in our community struggle with is like, hey, you know, is that really me? Can I really do this? I've got to be, you know, really extroverted or I've got to be a certain way. Can they just be themselves? Can you just be you? Or does it have to be sort of this polished thing where maybe you're acting a little bit or it's just not natural to you or any stories of people who've been a little quirky or different that maybe have done it well? Yeah, I mean... I think the pendulum swings back and forth on any given thing. And I think right now we're seeing the pendulum swing back in the direction of 
more authenticity and lower produced things because you did see like in the beginning of social media, people were tweeting just like totally innocuous, inane things like eating a sandwich, going down to the deli. Not that interesting. And then people started seeing it as a tool they can wield and paint themselves in a light of authority. So then they started taking it more seriously. They started putting on the mask of somebody that is a little bit more professional. But now that is starting to go out of style a little bit. We're, we're looking more for things that feel more real. So I think you can be yourself. But a big, big but and a big caveat here is that it still needs to be useful to the person receiving it. Being real, being yourself, but not providing something of value in so doing, not that interesting. I think you can earn the ability to just share personal updates when people are invested in you as the individual, but they become invested in you as the individual because you have given a lot to them first. So you really have to start with the giving side of things. One example I will give you though, David, there's a woman named Kat Norton. She goes by Miss Excel online and she got started because she was working a job, didn't love it. Again, COVID happened and she was at home and she's like, what am I going to do with my time? She asked herself, what are the things that I love? And she had a list of, well, I love Excel. I love teaching people because she actually taught Excel at her company internally. They flew around the country to teach people how to use Excel well. But she also loved dancing. And she thought to herself, that's a bizarre mix. I probably can't figure that out. But then she literally just started making TikTok videos where there were Excel tutorials on screen. She would choose music that was related to it and she would dance while the tutorial was playing. And it was hugely successful, took off like crazy. She has now a multi, multi-million dollar business because it was so different. It like really stood out. It was unique to her. So she had really positive energy behind it. Now, like she can do all kinds of things. So she, she has so much optionality in it. And it came from asking, what, what is something that is sustainable that I can keep doing? Because a lot of people, you're right, when they show up to social media, they think they have to be a certain way. And that can be unsustainable if it's hard for you to be that thing or be that person. So if you find something that feels authentic to you and fun and that you enjoy, it's much more sustainable. And this is a long-term game. So if you love Excel and dancing, just do Excel and dancing, I guess. That's the takeaway. Well, and also she picked the right platform for it. There, there is something about platform content fit in a way, or even platform audience fit, because that probably wouldn't have worked as well on Twitter. In fact, like her Twitter audience is smaller than anything else because Twitter visuals and video just don't perform as well. It's more about your quality of writing and being precise and quick. It's a different audience. So she picked a good platform for it as well. What happens to these people years later when they, I mean, I, I remember this guy that used to go around the world and just dance all the time. Remember that guy who just made those videos? I don't know if you know the story, but how did he monetize that, right? Like when, when you, you sort of go viral or build this audience, Sometimes I never follow where these people go in their careers, but it'd be really interesting to do that. Yeah, I mean, the word creator, which is the word that I use the most frequently to talk about the people that I serve, it's incredibly broad because Mr. Beast is a creator creating like ridiculous game show style videos on YouTube. But so is like Salman Khan, the guy who did videos for Khan Academy. They're both creators, but wildly different models, different levels of sustainability and longevity because on the entertainment side of creativity, you kind of have to keep innovating and reinventing yourself because people get bored of the same thing. They need new things. On the education side, though, if you pick a human problem that people are going to continue to have and need solved, you almost have like this bottomless well of potential customers. 
So most of the people that I work with are more on the education side where they're trying to help people learn something, achieve something, self-actualize in some way. And they have a lot more staying power, it seems. Whereas in the entertainment world, there's kind of a, a game of like musical chairs where people come and go. But in those moments where attention is really flowing to you, momentum is a very real thing that you want to capture and maintain for as long as you can. And if you feel like you're coming to the end of where that momentum can take you or that specific opportunity or that specific moment of attention is going, you want to pivot and parlay it into the next thing that's new and exciting. That's a world that entertainers are much more suited for. That's harder for most of us. I would think most of the people listening to this show would be more on the education side of the spectrum. And I think that has a lot of longevity. If you're picking a problem that is evergreen and going to stick around for a while. So speaking of those startups listening in, the specific audience, Rapid Fire, what's your quick advice for entrepreneurs to build audience or build awareness for what they're doing? Uh, any quick nuggets for them? I would pick a platform that you find yourself being a consumer of because that's going to give you the best starting point for being a creator on that same platform because you're going to speak the language. You're going to understand the internal jokes, the inside jokes, the, the lingo of people using this platform and what type of content is doing well. And then I would start to put in place a practice of actually creating on that platform. And I do recommend publishing something daily because these platforms really reward consistency and will prioritize your content when they know that you're investing more time and bringing more attention to yourself and the platform. So it doesn't have to be super in-depth, but if you prioritize publishing something daily on one platform, and I would choose one to start, you're going to get a lot of iterations, a lot of reps will make you better, and you'll start to understand both, do I like this? And how can I get better at it? Because this is a long-term game. Like I said, it's a compounding game, but the first couple of years of it, will feel a little bit like a slog depending on your starting point. So you have to get started. The sooner you get started, the, the sooner you'll have that compounding effect. Awesome. Jake Klaus, easy to find online. Thanks for giving first to the Techstars community. Uh, Creative Elements is the podcast, Creator Science. Uh, you got a newsletter and lots of resources out there for people that are listening to learn more about all this. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks, David. It was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. <laughs>